My global IQ is 109. To those who have followed George Friedman's career, first at Stratfor, the firm he founded in 1996, and now at Geopolitical Futures, established by him about five years ago, you know that his prognostications are both bold and astonishingly accurate. Few are better at taking lessons from the past, evaluating the present to predict the future. The author of five books, his most recent published just last month is titled, The Storm Before the Calm, America's Discord, The Coming Crisis of the 2020s and the Triumph Beyond. George, thank you so much for spending time with us today. George, let's begin with you giving us just really the, the background on this book and the premise. Well, the background of this book is that it began in a bar in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in about 1975. And I was sitting with a couple of colonels. And if you've known colonels, nobody can complain more than a colonel. And we were talking about the catastrophic situation we've been in, the loss in Vietnam, the uh, resignation of Richard Nixon, uh, violence, assassinations, and everything else. And as they pointed out, there's never been a time so terrible. There has never been a time when it's really hard to imagine how the Republic will survive. And my view sitting there with them was that, yes, uh, it's a bad time, but we got through the Civil War. So then I began asking the question, how, how often do we have times like this? And the answer turned out to be, well, there's this regularity. There are cycles that take place. And this was actually, if you look backwards, a predictable cycle. And I then said to no one in particular that, well, for example, this cycle will end in 1980. There'll be a new president who will take us in a new direction. He'll be reviled, but he will take us to this different place. Well, about five Years ago, as I saw the system starting to crack again, the way I remember it, I took my notes from that out. I wrote up at a typewriter and took them out. And that was the origin of this book, because this book is about the cycles that drive American history and the psychological catastrophes that happen at the turning points. What led you at this time to, to write the book? I mean, you said you know, it was a number of years ago that you got the idea, but you've written a number of books in, in, in the meanwhile. Well, if my theory was right then, about 2020, a little before then, we would start entering a period of instability, not too di different from what was in the 60s. And that instability would be drawn by a number of factors, uh, ranging from economic uh, to social, intellectual to technical, uh, a range of things would be converging. And as they converged, the old system wouldn't know how to handle it. So they would become rigidly conservative. And just as Ronald Reagan came in and blasted apart the conventional wisdom on how to govern, or before him, Roosevelt did, it was time for that moment to happen again in 2020. So I began in 2015 to write this book. That begins just before 2020 and I wanted to explain for once, and no one was going to listen anyway, is this isn't that bad. There are lots worse times than this is. And that we develop because of this, that the United States is an invention, 
an artificial thing and it's like a machine and it goes through cycles and we're at that point. One of the things, George, that I found especially interesting about your book is that you really perhaps don't put as much emphasis on the role of the president of the United States. And I, I found that surprising. Well, the president of the United States is the weakest political leader in the Euro-American world. Parliamentary systems where a prime minister has a majority of his party, he's virtually a dictator. The president of the United States has two houses, two parliaments, essentially, arrayed against him, and a legal system so massive and intrusive that it can stop virtually everything he does. There's a wonderful paradox, which is we look to the president as the father who will solve all our problems without realizing how little power he actually has. I remember, well, I don't remember, but FDR had to try to figure out how to pack the Supreme Court to allow him to have the New Deal. So he is a creature of history. He is thrown up by massive forces. Uh, Donald Trump was thrown up by this coming crisis and what was seen by at least a substantial part of the company, country incapable of recognizing what was happening, how terrible things were for them. We saw him have a great slogan, um, make America great again, which America said, what is he talking about? Why make it great again? Well, because for vast numbers of Americans, American greatness had slipped. And so we look at that and we say, what does the president do? The president expresses the reality of the moment. But in terms of actual power to act, he can only act when he builds coalitions. And there are certain points in history you can't build a coalition. Let's talk about what brought President Trump into office. And one of the things on page 139 of your book, you have a graph that shows household income stays flat. And you really talk about the frustration of lower income that could no longer see perhaps the pathway to having the, a, a comfortable house, being able to take, as you say, a short vacation. Go ahead and elaborate a bit more on that. Well, first thing you have to remember that the people we're talking about were the heart of the American industrial system. Uh, they were well-paid. They had all these things. It is far more tense when you lose these things than we never had them. And the event, this movement of industry to China, the development of an entirely new technology that they couldn't understand, left them in a position of decline up till the point where the income of the, the median income of the lower middle class is $35,000 a year. And these were people who were earning substantially more. At $35,000 a year, you take home maybe $2,600, $2,700 a month outside of California. Um, well, what happens to these people? They're expected to go quietly into that good night. In fact, they engage in addition, and this is very important, a culture war where they belong to the Baptist church or the Roman Catholic church or whatsoever who taught certain things, okay? 
And these things were from another class regarded as xenophobic or homophobic or Islamophobic. They, in other words, it was not a subject on which you could disagree. It was a subject in which you were mentally unstable phobia if you held a view. Well, the level of alienation of this group was substantial. And this group looked at uh, Hillary Clinton, who called them deplorable, and I think she lost the election at that point, who looked at Hillary Clinton as a monster. And so this was the core of Trump's presidency. But I want to add to this. If you look at an electoral map, it's very interesting. Clinton was very powerful on the West Coast and the Northeast. Between the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachians, only three states went for her. New Mexico, Colorado, and Illinois. So the split here is geographical. The two coasts are the coasts that are dynamic and growing. The center of the country houses these people. And what really happened here was a rebellion by the dispossessed to give a, you know, a purple explanation. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. When you look at what might be the next cycle, how does this industrial class look at what you call the technocrats. It involves both the institutional cycle and the social cycle. World War II created a class of people that gained an enormous legitimacy in managing World War II. These were experts. Experts from business, experts from physics, experts everywhere. The Manhattan Project personified this. The idea that this class had a particular right of rule was what emerged in World War II. And for a very long time, they did extremely well, both in corporations and private life at universities, everything else. The experts managed well, but as these things grew, the experts ran into a problem. Experts are by definition narrow. They know one thing very well, okay? Uh, they're hedgehogs. And in being that, all right, they sometimes don't see the whole. Or they make the entire matter so complex that no one comp comprehends it. Um, they deep, dig so deeply into their area, and the person in the next cubicle digs so deeply in their area, they wind up with this paradox. Social Security, one of the most important events in American social history, was 15 pages long. The entire healthcare regulatory manual is about 15,000 pages long. And part of it contradicts itself because there was no overarching common sense bringing it together. So you've reached a point at this point that the technocrats have done two things. First, they have created a level of complexity that goes counter to a principle of democracy. The public has to understand. They also have created another reality. 
In the First Amendment, rarely mentioned, is the right to petition your government. That is to ask for things. Lincoln used to welcome people into his office on certain days to petition him, to ask for favors. It is almost impossible to petition your government. Who do you ask? The people who are at the desk at the front uh, have no right to make decisions. They have regulations written. The regulations don't anticipate the problem you have. And so you're in a crisis. The federal government increasingly is enclosed. And at the same time, uh, increasingly unable to build coherent policies. So all of our cycles begin with success. And the success goes forward and forward and forward until it no longer functions. And we replace it. At this point, the federal government whatever it does is so complex and difficult to navigate that it takes an expert to do it. And an expert only says, well, I know what I know. I don't know what anybody else does. And is that not perhaps what we're seeing with the coronavirus? In a sense, yeah. The coronavirus is in the hands of medical experts. Uh, they say that they cannot produce a vaccine in under a year and a half at the earliest that there is no medicine. Therefore, what we should do is maintain social distance, perfectly acceptable. They don't consider, and it's not their responsibility, consider the consequences of social distance. How do you run an economy if people are afraid to go shopping, uh, obviously? Uh, how do you raise a 10-year-old child in a three-room apartment for seven months? Well, that's not their job. You were asked to solve the problem, and this was the solution. And the problem is that they're experts, and because they're experts, they can't be challenged. And other segments have not come up with solutions. So uh, Dr. Fauci, who is a very enticing and nice man, and an expert, of course, he draws on expertise, and he has us in a position to raise the question, what happens if we get a depression? How, what is the psychological damage of being afraid of everyone you see? Now, there may be no solution, but no one's thinking about it. So it really comes down, though, as you say, to the complexity of the government. And when you look at the next cycle, what will, in a sense, turn that? Well, the beginning of any cycle is that the institutions stop working. They stop doing what they're supposed to do. And there are two ways we can see this. One, that the 1980s, the rise of the microchip economy, okay, is reaching maturity. It's not collapsing. It's not going to go away. It's reaching the point of maturity. It is 50 years old, about the same age as the automobile was in 1965. In other words, we have reached the end of the cycle. Uh, it's not high tech anymore although we are obsessed with it as we were with the automobile at the time. The second problem is you can really see happening in universities. There are many things happening in universities, but this one is particularly important to me because the 1920s universities were entities in which only the right sort of person was admitted and that not includes whatever, okay? And then we had the GI Bill. And we had the GI Bill, which blew that apart, expertise celebrated, and went forward. 
And now we're back, you know, Harvard has had, they've probably changed it by now, a questionnaire to be asked by people sitting on committees for admission. Is this the sort of person you'd want to room with? Is this the sort of person you'd like to have dinner with? Is this the sort of person whose company you'd enjoy? Well, that gets me out of the IVs right away. <laughs> I'm not going to be going there. But more, more to the point, imagine a young woman from Arkansas who's anti-abortion and whose ambition at Harvard is to start an anti-abortion movement. The chances of her being someone you want to room with. In other words, what they've done is our sort of people should be admitted. And what we've seen in some of the various scandals here uh, has been really the enclosure of the factory that creates experts. Experts are generated by the university. Along with expertise now is an ideology. And that's not, not the problem. Universities always have ideology. But the selectivity of the 1920s has returned. And right after that, usually the university is blown up and rebuilt. And you also talk in your book just about how expensive American universities are, one for the students and the infrastructure, uh, compared to European universities. Do you think that we will perhaps ease our way more towards the European model? Well, we have $1.6 trillion in student loan debt for which there's a movement that they will not repay it. Interesting. Um, that is an unsupportable level. It is higher than subprime loans. It's guaranteed by the government. It gets more complex. But this is how the university maintains itself, why it can continually increase salaries and so on, which is that it has a entree into the federal government via the student loan system that adjusts itself as the salaries, as uh, costs go up. But the point is, if you take a look at a university, they're located in parks in the United States, sometimes the most expensive land in a city. Columbia University on the Upper West Side has got to be able to realize several billion dollars based on the land. I went to Cornell. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. I enjoyed it greatly. I also went to CCNY. It was rotten. It was miserable. There was nothing I learned at Cornell that I didn't learn at CCNY. That is, they're both excellent schools. You have teachers, you have desks, you talk. We have the most lavish infrastructure for universities. But that goes back beyond the cycle. That goes back to how we envision the university and land-grant colleges and things like that. Before we close, George, I'd like to read the second to the last paragraph on the last page. America is a country in which the storm is essential to clear the way for the calm. Because Americans obsessed with the present and future have difficulty remembering the past, they will all believe that there has never been a time as uncivil and tense as this one. They will wait for the collapse of all things and loathe all those who produced it, which will be those with whom they disagree. It will be a time of self-righteous, self-certainty, hatred, and sometimes murderous for those they despise. And then the patterns of history work their way through using the raw material available. American power in the world will sustain itself because the power of a country like the United States, a vast economy and military and seductive culture does not decline because it is hated. All empires are hated and envied. Power is not diminished by either. And as I said, that's the second to last paragraph and the rest of the book to get there 
is very interesting. George, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye-bye.